with that suicide bombing that killed eight Americans at a CIA base in eastern Afghanistan. It's believed to be one of the deadliest attacks in the agency's history, and this morning the Taliban are claiming responsibility. CBS News national security correspondent David Martin has the latest on this story, and he joins us this morning. Good morning, David. Good morning, Harry. The CIA still has not confirmed the deaths, but officials say eight CIA, CIA employees were killed and as many as eight more wounded. Uh, the bomber apparently just walked up to them on the base and detonated his suicide ba uh, vest. What he was doing on the base, how he got on the base, whether he was deliberately targeting the CIA or just out to kill Americans are among the many things still under investigation. But one thing seems clear, this was the worst single loss of life for the CIA since 1983 when a truck bomber blew up the American embassy in Beirut. As far as we know, eight employees of the CIA had been killed in Afghanistan prior to yesterday's uh, bombing. This uh, base that they were working out of, not so far from coast, which is that area around North Waziristan, which is a Taliban hotbed in that border area between Afghanistan and Pakistan. What would the CIA have been doing there? Well, we don't know specifically what these eight were doing, but this is exactly the kind of place where the CIA would try to recruit locals who could cross over the border into Pakistan and report what they see, intelligence that could be used to uh, target predator drone attacks, uh, for instance. The Taliban, of course, would uh, know or at least suspect what the CIA was up to and in classic espionage fashion would try to uh, turn those uh, CIA spies into double agents working for the Taliban. Whether that happened in this case, we uh, don't know yet. Mm, terrible story. David Martin from the Pentagon this morning. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have Andrew Cousins on with me today, and uh, Andrew served for several years in the United States government in uh, different capacities, uh, first uh, doing some border work and then later doing some counterterrorism work. Uh, Andrew, how's it going, brother? Doing well, man. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Um, so you've done a number of things in your career. Um, you no longer work for the government. And you've uh, written a book, and you know we're going to get into all of that. Um, can we start in the beginning and talk about what motivated you to join the security services? Yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, I wanted to follow. I think primarily in the footsteps of my father. He was a uh, um, he was armored cavalry in the um, Korean War era. Older guy, um, and. Uh, it was always my intent to do that, but he had made me uh, promise him that I would go into uh, either OCS or go in as an officer after graduation from college. And uh, um, and that way he would pay for college. It's kind of like a little trade-off. You know, he'd pay for college outright, um, what he can to pay for it, but uh, um, so I'd have a degree. But um, if I did that, then I could kind of get what I wanted to get on the back end of it. So um, leaving um, – 
about to leave college senior year happened to coincide with the boom of all the agencies hiring, meaning um, FBI, DEA, uh, ATF, uh, you name it. They were all kind of, um, you know, doing a major hiring boon and they were um, having guys in uh, to the academy, you know, with just about a bachelor's degree was all the requirement they had at that point in time. I think it was the late, late nineties. Um, obviously all that's changed since, right. Um, you know, you almost need a law degree or a political science degree to get into, um, a master's degree to get into, uh, the FBI. So I applied to the gamut of all of those, uh, made it to second phase in FBI, um, didn't get reinvited back for the DEA, uh, got hired by both, um, the ATF. And at the time it was just customs. It was pre nine 11. So it was just customs. And then border patrol was, a was a secondary, um, uh, agency was another agency entirely. Um, and then of course, uh, once I accepted, uh, the job with customs, that's when nine 11 happened. And of course, all that stuff kind of fell under the, uh, department of Homeland security umbrella and they consolidated some agencies. They got rid of some agencies. And of course the consolidation that affected me was customs slash border patrol or CBP. Um, so you ended up kind of rolling into that. Yep. Yep. And, uh, that was also an exciting time there as well. Um, and it happened <laughs> probably important to mention, I missed the ATF. I, I, di- I didn't accept the ATF invite, but that was right before, um, David Koresh and, uh, Waco, uh, Texas. You can mm. remember the ATF was, was repelled heavily on that, uh, raid there. So, right. um, I feel like I kind of dodged that bullet, but, um, when I went in there, they were, they were standing up a bunch of new, uh, Units, um, including uh, obviously air interdiction, uh, Borstar, uh, I believe Bortac was already in existence, but they were expanding Bortac. So it was just a time of uh, great excitement um, in that agency. So, so um, I'd like to talk about some of that. Um, first, if we can start with, can you describe a little bit of what the aerial interdiction stuff was like or consisted of? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, obviously aerial platform-based stuff. Um, a lot of the uh, pilots and crews uh, that worked that side were, uh, you know, in uh, either fixed wing or rotor wing aircraft. A lot of them were out of the border um, stations. NACO station was one, Southern Arizona, and then of course uh, Fort Huachuco was another. Um, a lot of A stars, you know. I think a, a Black Hawk or two. Uh, so basically light and medium aircraft for, uh, the purpose of stopping, um, the overflights of, uh, narcotics, um, either, um, in, you know, privateer flights, um, you know, coming over the border that happened to be American and orientation or whatever the cartels were pushing, um, our direction in, 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 uh, planes or, or helicopters, mostly, mostly planes, uh, that point in time. So, if you know, let, let's say for example, if you can talk about it, you know, if you guys like intercept the aircraft coming over, how does that work? You, well, usually, uh, you know, you you know try to uh, radio uh, the the pilot of the aircraft that was responsible for the incursion. If that didn't work, um, you could always call Air Force assets, and Air Force assets would try to force the plane to the ground. But you basically just track it to its location, um, whether it was. Um, its final location or whether it was in an area where they started dumping, uh, 
uh, their payload. <clears throat> so that whatever narcotics they had on board. So it's kind of like a uh, mousetrap uh, type type scenario. Right, and the the cartels they're pretty creative and and in some ways innovative in how they attempt to smuggle things across the border. Oh man, um, <laughs> like nobody else, you know that's what happens when you got lots of money to spend, right? You got uh, all kinds of funding. You can find new and exciting ways to to do um, whatever it is you want to do. So, can we talk about what exactly Bortec is? Yeah, so Bortec is kind of the uh, kind of the tactical side of Border Patrol, meaning they'll deal directly um, with any kind of uh, cartel incursions. Um, obviously, the cartels are well armed, um, come with spotters, and nowadays, um, obviously, they come with a lot of high tech gadgetry, just like uh, U.S. military or, or, or Mexican military. So, um, essentially, Bortec was established just to kind of match uh, head on match that. Uh, um, you know, that effort, um, you know, these guys would do, uh, would, coy- uh, would coyote, uh, or, you know, do uh, long range reconnaissance, um, hide sites, um, uh, you know, uh, close target reconnaissance, depending on what the cartels were up to, whether that was tunneling, uh, whether that was moving, um, people or narcotics over land based, um, uh, ge- geographical areas, um, you know, whether they were, um, uh, you know, doing any kind of uh, um, uh, operations within a within a town or, or around a metropolitan area. That's kind of where Bortac would become involved, and and you know these guys were usually the tip of the spear for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was in um, this summer. I was in Israel, and um, a buddy of mine. He's um, he's British, but he's lived there for about twenty years. Served in the army um, in a special operations unit. And um, I'd done some bouncing around. I, I went to Jordan for a couple of days and I came back. And um, we were in Tel Aviv and we were having breakfast. And we were just talking about different things. And he he had like a buddy who worked uh, border security. Um, and he was telling me that. So in Jordan, all, all over the Middle East, but I think they're predominantly in Jordan, is a, a nomadic tribe of Arabs and they're called the Bedouins. And, um, yep. One of these yep. tribes uh, apparently were big drug smugglers uh, between Jordan and Egypt. And um, and he was telling me that the uh, Israeli security or, or army unit that was there, um, you know, they're getting into like gunfights with these guys. And they, they killed a couple of them and they recovered their bodies. And these guys had like night vision and, and suppressed, you know, rifles and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's just kind of uh, fascinating to see what what people get their hands on when they're doing some of this uh, illegal activity. Oh yeah, man. Like I said, that's the key uh, component. There is the funding that the cartels have. So they'll spend their money um, on whatever it takes to give these guys the advantage. So you got, I mean, high end uh, encrypted comms, um, you name it, they're going to kind of come at you with it. And uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, a lot of the cartels are pretty well trained now or have, um, components of, uh, you know, Guatemalan special forces, what have you. But, uh, you know, that Vortex, no slouch, slouch unit. These guys have a lot of um, former uh, seventh group guys, guys that have operated in the uh, Central and South America and stuff. So they're they're quite used to the, uh, the lifestyle. So it's, uh, you know, it's just a kind of a chess game out there. Right. So you've um, 
you've done the area of interdiction. You worked with some of these other groups there, and then um, you've also done some security work for the Olympics. Um, there's a lot that goes into security for such a huge event like that. Um, can we talk about what that was like working on that? Yeah, yeah, that was the 2002 Winter Olympics, man. That was uh, for me. It was uh, Snow Basin, um, you know, just outside of Ogden. And it was the, um, the first time since 9-11 we hosted a, a large-scale event. So at the time, I didn't know, but there was an organization called the NSSE. I believe it stands for National Special Security Events. And it's a kind of like a task force they put together. So at the time, it was a hangar um, in Mountain Green, which kind of is a com- small community that faces the mountain, that faces the Super G event that they were um, conducting obviously at uh, Snow Basin for the Olympics. And um, <laughs> within that 16,000 square foot hangar, man, you had, uh, gosh, probably like eight agencies um, at the time, which didn't all pl- play well nice to with each other. Uh, FBI, Secret Service, um, uh, CBP, uh, man, I could go on and on. And everybody kind of, uh, kind of shared that command center, um, had to uh, work off of each other's uh, comm, uh, comms channels or, or, you know, kind of deconflict uh, at that, at that, from that point. And then of course, all the agencies, helicopters um, use the landing pads there as well. So um, at the time we were doing, uh, helping with communications, bringing communications equipment up to the top of the hill so that they could get those uh, intertwined with uh, the existing uh, communications for the mountain. And then we were also doing um, uh, overflights, uh, security overflights, and then the establishment of um, hide sites. Uh, and there were some, obviously, some big names there. Um, you know, at the time, uh, I wasn't involved, but uh, the CIA was there with uh, their folks, FBI, HRT. Um, I believe there were advisors from um, JSOC at the time because nobody wanted anything to happen on American soil right. uh, post 9 11, right? So, um, everybody was invited to the playhouse and it was kind of a interesting, interesting time. But, um, the NSSE is what kind of gave me my springboard into, um, doing some counterterrorism work. Cause meeting those guys, a lot of them, um, you know, they were pretty seasoned, uh, operators and guys that spent a lot of time downrange. And of course, um, you know, in DC in the beltway. So good, uh, good opportunity to network for sure. So how long was it after that? Uh, Olympics that you then moved away from the border stuff. So I did another, uh, did another year and then decided I wanted to work, um, closer to home. And I really enjoyed, uh, the community in around Boise, um, ended up doing some aerial based, uh, wildfire stuff, um, kind of moved into the, uh, um, uh, the fire rescue, uh, urban fire rescue arena too, trying to keep my medical quals current and then kind of raise them up a little bit. And uh, in the meantime, um, I was still applying um, to different jobs, different federal jobs that were available in and around uh, the Idaho, Boise, Idaho community. Um, And it was when I got an invitation to apply uh, to an OGA program that actually I hadn't heard of before at the time. But um, it was, uh, you know, obviously doing stuff overseas, uh, working with, uh, uh, you know, kind of the uh, intel collection side for, for uh, OGA. And um, and that's kind of how I got my, my foot in the door there. Yeah, I think for the most part, probably around those years and the the previous years, um, that that particular group was relatively unknown, um, to the public anyway. 
Um, yes, definitely. And then, of course, you know, within the last 15 years or so, things happen and, and things come out or whatever. But um, so, you know, doing that, that type of work is um, is important and is vital to national security. Um, the other day, I'd I'd come across some articles online on like, I think they were like mainly conservative based platforms. Um, I kind I kind of pay attention to everything a little bit and just see what people are talking about. And there was just um, I, I saw I had seen a couple of articles and then I seen some people I'm friends with on social media, sort of supporting it and backing it. And and basically they were just admonishing the intelligence community, and um. And just bringing, and then you know, when I I written a couple comments, and all they're doing is just talking about you know a couple of negative things that had happened over the years, and obviously there are some uh, legitimate criticisms, but um, I, I feel like a lot of the successes uh, aren't spoken about at least publicly, and um, I, I thought it was a bit unfair um, because a lot of people who work in the intelligence community. Uh, sacrifice a lot uh, time with family um and and their minds and, and their bodies and you know people get killed and things like that um so i'd like to talk about the um the importance of having um you know security teams and and intel folks uh in, in some of these places around the world uh that you've been as as important as it relates to national security yeah, you bet. I think after 9-11, all the kind of the gloves were off with that and they needed to kind of double, triple um, their ability to collect intel and in some of the hostile environments. You know, in the past, um, you know, the security profile was pretty, pretty slim. And um, a lot of these guys uh, would go places, um, you know, because they're coming from the Cold War era where a lot of these guys would operate uh, autonomously. Um, but there was some degree of uh, mutual understanding. But as soon as you had you know, mix in bin Laden and, and uh, Saddam Hussein and um, what have you, you know, you're operating in a very hostile uh, region that essentially looking to not only take out, um, you know, the American military or what they considered uh, the intelligence assets um, for organizations like OGA, but, um, you know, take out any Americans for that matter. Um, so the security profile was dramatically increased uh, for these case officers and these, um, uh, you know, these, um, these guys that are kind of analysts or, or uh, uh, you know, they're kind of operating in and around the area to, to help with the intel collection. So um, it, it's necessary to have uh, a security profile that's equal to the threat. And I think that's kind of where um, our job came in is, you know, we were provided with, um, you know, uh, mobile platforms, weapons, uh, comms, um, basically the ability to, uh, if it was necessary or if it was available in the area to call in air power, um, uh, you know, close air support, what, what have you. And, and just make, ensure that the liaison, of course, liaise with a lot of these military units, um, that were kind of working under the same title as OGA, if that makes sense, um, doing a similar job, and just you know, utilizing all your uh, your assets to to get the job done. So, kind of a um, you know, not kind of a, a one size fits all tool, really, or or um, hat, but you know, just being able to kind of um, 
bring to bear any uh, protective capabilities on these guys that were trying to, you know, hunt down the HVTs or these objectives. So, Right. I remember um, I read this book years ago. Uh, the guy wrote it under a pen name. He was a, um, a British special boat service guy. And um, he had joined in, the, I think it was the late 70s. Uh, he stayed in. I, I think he did 20 years. I don't quite remember. But after he got out, I think he was doing some contracting work or he was he was working for some uh, intel agency. And um, in the book, he talked about how he had worked up Northern Ireland and a lot of British Special Forces, um, they'll break off from their units for an extended period of time and they'll attach to a special intelligence detachment that they worked Northern Ireland and they would do basically undercover stuff, you know, intel gathering. And um, at times they, you know, they would get into gunfights and things like that. Um, but one of the things that he spoke about that made it possible to, um, to do that kind of work is that they looked like the people who they were targeting and going after. Right. And he spoke about um, how he was in Iraq in the early days of the Iraq war. And he was doing some undercover stuff, some kind of, um, you know, reconnaissance, like low profile stuff. And it was much more difficult, not because he didn't know how to do it, but just because he stood out so much. Um, and I, I think that's probably part of the difference in the need for security in, in some of these uh, hotspots. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I think that uh, you know working with some of these teams, you know, some of the best guys in the business um, for sure. Um, guys that have come from combat units, uh, um, a lot of tier one, tier two teams. Um, you know, with a lot of uh, a wide range of experience is. Uh, you know, it's critical because the second a firefight ensues or there's an ambush or uh, IED or, or what have you, you know, you, you want guys that have been there and done that to kind of help work through it. I was, um, I was there with that team as a medic and, um, obviously, you know, performed a different role, um, than a lot of the guys did, but, um, it was still you know, a requirement. And then we just kind of, you know, all did uh, protective security for the, uh, for the agency's guys, but, um, you know, just, just a, a very necessary, um, as you all know, from, uh, from friends of mine, uh, like Mark Geist and, and that were, um, obviously ambushed in, uh, in Benghazi, uh, Libya, um, right. a very, very big requirement for, uh, for that kind of work. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was probably, um, you know the, the sort of worst incident that took place for uh, that particular group, um, and I mean for the country as well. You know, the, an American ambassador died, and, and several other Americans were killed. Um, and and it, it's a big deal, and it just shows the the nature of how dangerous the work is. And and part of that is really what kind of threw me off when I was like reading some of these um, articles and, and seeing some of these comments from people I know on, on social media. Uh, about the intelligence community um and it, it's it's just kind of annoying because i feel like the base of it is political which is kind of weird because conservatives have always supported you know military national security type folks um so it's kind of a weird time i guess but uh i don't know i just found it kind of strange to, to see some of that stuff you know 
Yeah, yeah, of course. And there was uh, in my theater. I mean, granted, I was in a couple of uh, theaters. Afghanistan was the one I can name. There's a couple other areas of operations that I can't um, where I was d- deployed. But um, the one in, in my theater, of course, that was the big one was the one in Coast, and that was uh, right. Kind of the triple agent that uh, basically wore a suicide vest and, and you know killed you know what a dozen of the of uh, people of the of the uh, agency's finest and and that was um, a horrible tragedy as well and obviously a, a learning experience I think for a lot of people that uh, you know layers of security exist for a reason and, and you can't um, you know cut corners. So. Yeah, coast. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty big deal. I mean, uh, I forget the exact number of people killed, but I think it was around ten or maybe a little more. But that was a mix of um, agency folks, uh, some higher, some higher up. Um, I, I don't know if it was a chief chief of station was killed, but and then there were several security guys who were killed, uh, former special forces guys, uh, a special operations, sorry, and then um, I think there might have been an ex cop or two that was there as well. But um, yeah, I mean that that and and that I guess that happens from time to time. You know, people um, make some mistakes. Um, obviously, you know the information that I have about it is just what's been made public, but. Um, from what I understand, the um, what kind of let the guy in was not the usual security protocol. Right, and that's that's what the uh, they were kind of in a rush to get this guy's intel because he would, um, he was providing intel that was kind of above board, and they wanted to make him feel welcome and comfortable. And um, you know, obviously, security lapses there because uh, um, some of the uh, staffers were in kind of a rush to to uh to make to make that happen and, and we all know how that turned out so um not necessarily a good uh end result but definitely like i said definitely a learning experience definitely next time nobody's going to make the mistake of uh of kind of rushing somebody through security uh just to make them feel more comfortable and more willing to give uh give up uh valuable intel right uh, i think he had been um he had been living among some like high value targets in Pakistan, if I remember correctly. And um, in fact, um, I think the one of the the cousins of the Jordanian king was killed in that. He was an intelligence yeah. officer. Yeah, yeah, he was a, he was working Jordanian intelligence, which uh, um, you know kind of works hand in hand with us, uh, at least on the Al Qaeda side. Um, but yeah, it was a big, uh, big, big tragedy for sure. Yeah, and and that's really like a perfect example of what, what I meant. But basically, the the successes you don't know about, but the failures you do, you know. So, um, and I, I think that people should give some some credit to you know the folks who are spending their entire careers um, trying to protect the country, you know. Um, right. Absolutely. So, um, can we talk about the activity group? Yeah, so the Activity Group is a company that was started. Well, it was started essentially by products developed through a, uh, a, a basically a USASOC grant that was worth uh, several million dollars because at the time um, a, a senior uh, CAG or Delta Force medic um, wanted to improve upon a lot of the. Um, equipment that they used downrange. And that was on the heels of an assault in Afghanistan where um, they had several tourniquets 
um, break uh, upon application to save lives, and they had a, some issue with some of the gauze products. So the grant was set up initially through uh, Delta to kind of help develop these products. And due to that, um, the company that, um, uh, which is called RevMedics, which was initially the part of of that wanted to um, initiate a civilian program that would be able to push um, the same components or the same type of medical equipment that was developed under this grant to um, other military units, obviously not under the uh, special operations umbrella, and um, push that uh, type of equipment to SWAT, uh, TAC Med, federal units, et cetera. And that's how the activity group came about. In the aftermath, um, RevMedics went their own direction um, and, and went for another grant and decided not to be part of the activity group. But the activity group uh, started uh, marketing, obviously, th- those pieces of equipment and then started looking for other very high-end, cutting-edge uh, medical items that could be brought to bear on, on a kind of a battlefield-type wound or, or any kind of mass casualty incident. So. So there's several several points to that. Um, so you you basically you work with the activity group and um, and then I would also like to talk about T Triple C. It's it's hugely important. And is this something that you had learned and and trained upon in your your border patrol days? Oh well, it, it wasn't. Uh, it, it it didn't emerge. I think that. Early, gosh, that was 2000, 1999 to two to, to two thousand and four. So that was uh, that was still pretty early in that. Um, you know, I, I think at the time that a guy from uh, Delta had just developed the cat tourniquet in two thousand one to improve upon a cravat, if you can believe that, which was still being used since uh, what, the Civil War or, or even earlier as a tourniquet measure, but, um, yeah, but T triple C kind of came online shortly afterwards because of the, uh, the army, uh, big army noticing the amount of battlefield, um, casualties that that had come about simply from extremity hemorrhaging and, you know, stuff that could have been easily preventable, you know, on, on site. Um, obviously what we know now through self aid or buddy aid, um, without needing an actual medic to intervene. And uh, that kind of set off a firestorm because um, they were in a rush to develop equipment to support that and uh, essentially really get this program uh, homogenized and pushed out to every uh, military unit, um, even, you know, the FOBs, even the people that were uh, based on the FOBs to, to, uh, to mitigate, you know, any kind of uh, hemorrhaging and kind of increase the survivability of folks. But um, uh, we did do quite a bit of that stuff through OG. We did live tissue training, which they used a porcine model or pigs, uh, to simulate obviously a battlefield casualty. Um, it did add a sense of realism and, and, um, it certainly added a sense of, um, urgency, uh, because, you know, it's an, it's a live animal that's obviously been sedated and, and, uh, you know, you're in a rush to stabilize those wounds and transport it, um, and get a, <laughs> a passing grade at the end of the, at the end of the medical evolution. But, uh, um, that's when, you know, T triple C was a very serious, um, very uh, uh, much appreciated uh, component of uh, of deployments, and of course that spawned um, TECC, which is uh, Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, which of course a lot of SWAT teams and TAC Med teams use. 
nowadays. So what is the difference between TCCC and TECCC? So I think TCCC folks more, focuses more on a um, kind of a battlefield mentality, um, meaning that um, you're talking about uh, uh, less, obviously much less of a civilian component. Um, you obviously can still be in some, um, uh, you know, battlefield conditions, uh, because, you know, two of the, two of the most important, com- uh, most important components are, um, tactical field care, which is where you're treating wounded, but it's still considered a hot zone or a warm zone at the very least. And, and, and then of course the immediate care portion is when you're, um, in a firefight and got to usually apply your own tourniquet. Um, if you're, um, if you're the victim of a gunshot wound or, or any kind of blast damage. So, um, that's, I think that's a little different. You don't have that, um, that those teeth, so to speak in TE triple C or TE double C because it's, uh, it's more of a law enforcement, um, maybe serving a high risk warrant, you know, maybe, um, you know, doing a no knock warrant as part of a task force or a SWAT team. So you're going to, it's not going to be as, um, at least we hope it's not right. It's not going to be as uh, much of a conflagration. It's not going to be as much of a, a, a battlefield environment as it would for a T triple C trained unit. Right. Like guys probably aren't getting their legs blown off and stuff like that. Correct. Yeah. With the implementation of T triple C military wide and, and, you know, for the entire, entire platoon of Marines, everybody was trained on it. Um, not just the medic, I forget the exact numbers, but uh, there's been a substantial increase in people surviving wounds that they've received on the battlefield. I mean, more than any other war in, in history, actually. And um, I've had um, Delta Force medics on before, <clears throat> 18 Deltas, uh, Greenberry medics, and, and uh, Navy corpsmen. And one thing that is a, a general consensus is that TCCC should be pushed a step further and even be taught in high schools and um, maybe even junior high. And if if everyone knew the, the basics of TCCC, you know, by the time they were 18, let's say, uh, there would be so many more people surviving car accidents or, you know, a- any kind of accidents uh, across the states. Oh, absolutely, man. I, I think high school is the goal, right? I mean, uh, I think that's the, the goal of uh, Department of Homeland Security's Stop the Bleed program is to make this as um, as commonplace as the uh, Heimlich maneuver, right? right? I mean, remember you used to see Heimlich maneuver posters all over restaurants. You don't really see them too much anymore because right. everybody knows how to do it. And I think that's the goal of, um, of this uh, organization because uh, – you know, you want everybody to kind of intervene when there's a um, any kind of mass casualty incident, save lives right there before you can get uh, medics on scene. Um, because essentially, if it is a active shooter or workplace violence, um, they still a lot of places still don't have rescue task forces um, set up. So you'll need to wait and hold medics outside what you consider a warm zone, and that could be hours right. while while police clear the building. So um, it, it's a it's a program that's it's way past its time. Um, it just takes a long time nationally, a country our size, to implement anything like that for sure. Yeah, actually, that that's a good point that you bring up, um, where they would keep medics in in what you call the warm zone, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in the um, 
in the post nightclub shooting in Orlando. Yep. I believe yep. several people died because the medics couldn't go in because they considered it a hot zone. So the medics were just just outside of that, and they weren't allowed to go in and um, and treat people. So people were basically bleeding to death um, due to the security situation. Yeah, that's correct. Um, in fact, the opposite happened at uh, the Inland Regional Complex in San Bernardino. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, that was yeah. where the— uh, husband and wife terrorist team kind of took over and left behind an IED. But, uh, that, so that one was where, um, the, the San Bernardino SWAT team happened to be, it was a Wednesday and they happened to be training, um, uh, doing live training. So all they basically did is, is load up and roll out to the scene and they pushed a team, a SWAT team and attack med into that building and save lives because they got in there underneath the golden hour, which is where most people will bleed out from a, an artery, uh, dict artery or a severed artery. And they were able to say, I think, cause I got a chance to talk to the team lead and the, and the, and the attack med. And he, he said he had, I think he had tried, he had saved four lives oh, wow. um, because they had gotten there within that hour. So, and that was a good example of how this becomes really important. I think the problem is John, is that you get, uh, you get states and agencies that if, if a tragedy has not happened in their jurisdiction, um, they're not motivated to shift budgetary, monies to something like this you actually almost need a reactionary type uh um group where <laughs> where you need something bad to happen before you can start moving money and training and everything and implement these st- these kind of things um and that's unfortunate that we can't be more proactive yeah it is and it's it is it's um i mean i look at like 9-11 for example i mean before 9-11 i mean i think it was um after the the Lockerbie bombing, where the uh, the the aircraft, uh, somebody brought bombs onto the aircraft and blew it up. Uh, I, I think Gaddafi had something to do with that, if I remember correctly. Um, but basically, these guys just brought these bombs onto the aircraft in duffel bags, and right. th- that just shows how lax security was. And uh, and then you have these groups of of people where they're trying to figure out how they can hurt uh, America or the West or so they're looking at where the security gaps are and they used uh, that incident where they blew up the um, the aircraft itself and then fast forward to 9-11 you know they hijacked the plane and and flew it into building so it's just kind of I mean I can't even remember what it was like flying before 9-11 you know now you got so much security and um it's funny. Um, are you familiar with uh, Bill McRaven? Yep, I know a little bit about Bill. Yep. So he, uh, longtime Navy SEAL, was a JSOC commander at a point. Yep. Um, did a lot of work in the national security realm, and he put out a, I think, his second book, and I just finished it. And um, he'd been in, he'd been injured in a, uh, a skydiving training uh, scenario. And uh, I, I think his recovery was like a year and a half. Or so. It was like a long recovery. It was a pretty serious injury. So during his recovery period, he'd been posted to Washington, D.C. This is right after 9-11 uh, to work as some kind of counterterrorism liaison for the White House. And um, they had just uh, caught the uh, the shoe bomber guy. Um, he had some kind of bomb in his shoe, but I think it didn't go off or something like that. And so they ended up arresting him and... Um, so it's it's kind of funny, 
um, so I, I travel quite a bit and I'm also a photographer, so I always have gear with me, uh, you know, several lenses, camera equipment and uh, computer equipment and stuff. So when you get to the security line uh, in the airport, you have to take your laptop out. In some airports, you have to take your camera out and you have to take your sneakers off. And um, in his book, McRaven, he he goes, uh, and in the course of the conversation he was having with the head of TSA, he writes, um, you know, and the thing that I said to this guy next is something that, that I reg- I'm going to regret for the rest of my life. And he basically had come up with this idea that people can detonate explosives through their laptops. So you had to have everybody take their laptops out of their bag and you had to have everybody take their sneakers off uh, before they go through the security check. Yep. Um, so anyone who travels quite a bit, you can blame that on um, Bill McRaven. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. But uh, everything is always over uh, emphasized when it comes to the government. You know, I'm still waiting for TSA to catch to catch anybody noteworthy, right? Right. So. Right. Um, so you um, you also work with a group. Uh, called the Global Surgical Medical Support Group, or GSMSG for short. Um, yeah. They are a group of fantastic people. They do really good uh, selfless work. I know um, Aaron Epstein. He's the uh, the head of the organization. Uh, I believe you know him as well. Um, so what, what kind of work have you been doing with the GSMSG? So right now we were, doing, um, we were trying to do some um, logistics for them. Uh, to get vehicles in one area of operations, um, I missed this uh, last missed this last trip uh, to uh, the Iraq uh, theater because of uh, some family stuff, and of course, I was uh, getting my um, working dog spun up as well. So that was a uh, kind of a, um, a factor uh, as well. But uh, they. Um, <clears throat> essentially have a couple of components. They have a training arm that helps train uh, medical and other important information uh, to the indigenous uh, militaries that exist there, and um, including medical, uh, obviously, but some tactical. And then, they, of course, they've got uh, doctors and, and corpsmen and nurses that help um, uh, kind of work with the indigenous populations that have been disaffected by the war um, and are still kind of under the thumb of ISIS, uh, suffered injuries or permanent injuries or maybe health effects. And Aaron does a great job of kind of bringing uh, almost like an entire medical hospital to bear um, in some of these uh, countries, even in, even in an expeditionary fashion, uh, so that they can kind of give these people the same level of care that they would get if they were um, on a military base, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. You know, I was talking I was talking to Aaron and um he had worked in the in the government in some capacity and then he goes, One day I just decided I wanted to be a doctor and so then he does some medical work and then he creates this fantastic organization and um I believe they are one of the only organizations that hires retired tier one guys um to do it to work in this sort of capacity. And um, they are the only non-government organization to work on special operations guys who were badly injured. Like, they perform, like, life-saving surgery. Um, Oh, yeah. So I think that was pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think that's um, 
Epstein's claim to fame, you know, so much so that I think he's relied on in country um, by some units that are operating there uh, for the military. And that's um, that's a testimonial to to the strength of his character and of his organization's mission profile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just a great organization that relies totally on donations. And uh, I think that's um, that's the beauty of it is that taxpayers aren't footing that bill. It's literally um, just out of the goodness of his heart and uh, and uh, just a, an amazing you know man with an amazing vision um, and, and a lot of guys that are willing to support it to kind of keep – uh, the same lifestyle that they had um, going that when they were in um, in country, I mean, it, it it does as much for the veterans as it does um, for for um, for the organization and, and for the indigenous folks. Um, it, it's kind of like a, uh, a, for lack of a better word, it's kind of like a great uh, problem solver on a lot of different levels. Right. You know what I mean? So, so what was it like deploying with them? So, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's run professionally. I mean, it's a lot like when I deployed for OGA because essentially, uh, you know, you, um, you, you, you depend on kind of your own monies to get in and out of there, um, by commercial aircraft. But once you're on scene, um, you know, the guys in the, uh, units that are training all the indigenous, indigenous personnel are going to kind of support you, um, the way they have, um, you know, through their, uh, particular special operations units, meaning that, you know, kind of watch each other's back, pick each other up, um, uh, drop each other off, uh, you know, just kind of do everything in a, on a kind of a covert until you're on, um, for example, in, in this case, until you're on, um, uh, Peshmerga's, uh, uh, base in and of itself, uh, or within, um, uh, their compound, you're going to, you know, kind of, so you're going to be self-contained and kind of keep each other, um, safe. And then once you're obviously there, you can kind of expand your, uh, profile a little bit and, um, you know, look a little bit more American than you can than when you, uh, fly into these particular countries. So it's just, it's just done very professionally and, and Aaron gives everybody a lot of latitude, uh, to kind of, um, you know, resort to what they were good at when they were in the military, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're definitely good folks. Um, I've had Aaron on the podcast twice, and I've had a a former Navy corpsman on who had deployed with them. Um, and I've actually considered um, taking a trip with them as a photographer. Um, oh, you should, John, for sure. I mean, that's it, it's a chance of a lifetime, man. I think um, you know, just to see what these guys can do, and and to see how good this organization is at you know getting boots on ground and helping um, folks that otherwise would not have any um, any help medically is just amazing. Right, and and obviously the most important factor of that is helping people and and teaching people who are affected by ISIS and and. The security situation, but from a from a photographer standpoint, I think it would be incredible to be able to capture what some of that interaction looks like, um, you know, through photography and and, and images, and uh, kind of show that to the world, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. That's it's just a great uh, chance to increase their funding and, and give them more donations and, and increase the chance for Aaron to uh, to reach out and help more communities for sure. Right. And if, if people want to get uh, squared away with doing some donations, they can just go to their website, right? 
Yep, yep, and I believe that's just globalsurgicalmedicalgroup.org, and that's uh, the easiest way to connect there. Right, absolutely. Um, okay, so you've um, you've written a book. Um, two of them now, actually. Right, two books. Um, you've dealt with some some tough personal circumstances. Um, aside from you know the, the difficulties of deploying and, and stuff like that. Um, can we talk about some of this? Walk through maybe some of your books a little bit, and, and then talk about some of your circumstances. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, the book was initially supposed to be an autobiography, which was kind of designed um, by me never to be published, but just to be a kind of a, a way to get my um, uh, to get my personal problems out on paper, right, and help. Uh, um, you know, be my own therapist, so to speak. So, um, that was kind of what I was intending initially on. And then, uh, when I did decide to publish it, it was because a friend, um, who was a big, um, military supporter, she, and, and she's in the politics and everything. Um, she just thought it'd be good to get the story out there, maybe to help others. So, um, when I published that autobiography, which ended up being about 90,000 words, um, my organization flatly, uh, kind of denied, um, my ability to publish it by redacting so much of the text that it was virtually unreadable. Um, so that being said, um, I was kind of in a, the doldrums, so to speak. I just didn't feel really positive about it. Um, after I'd gone and, and put that effort in because the publications review board at the agency sat on it for, you know, six months, so to speak. But, um, a Navy friend, a Navy veteran friend told me to write fiction. He said, Hey, you know, I've seen it done before. It's a good way to change things, uh, protect OPSEC and, and really get the story out there only under fictional form. And, and that's what I decided to do. And, uh, with a failed state, um, took an amalgamation, gave me more, uh, uh, uh creative autonomy and allowed me to kind of get, um, the story told through the, the lens of several people's eyes other than mine. And, uh, and that was exciting. So when I wrote that, it was obviously a much shorter, uh, uh, you know, 36, 37,000 word, uh, writing, but it kind of allowed me to tell a few stories. Um, but also talk about, um, the main characters and how, you know, they were plagued with, uh, some, uh, some of the same things a lot of guys come home with, you know, uh, anxiety, PTSD, uh, anger issues, um, hormonal deficiencies, uh, obviously besides, um, you know, the laundry list of physical injuries as well. So, um, kind of allowed me to talk a little bit about these guys that have issues that are still, uh, feeling the need to deploy, uh, <laughs> which included myself, right. Um, uh, just to kind of keep their heads about them. And, um, that's what they do best. That's what they love to do. It's what they know to them. It's manageable stress. The battlefield is, uh, and so that was kind of what the gist of the first book was about, you know, sure, it had some uh, action in there, but it, it talked about some characters that were based on real guys, uh, either on my team or other teams, and uh, and and just really, uh, you know, dealt with some issues and um, pretty well received. Like I said, uh, uh, a case officer, a uh, former case officer named Mike Baker, uh, who worked for the agency, he brought it on to Joe Rogan and mentioned it, and it kind of took off from there and, and and sold a whole bunch of copies and. Uh, and actually just doing the audible for that book right now. So they failed state nice. should be available on audible here soon. But, um, are you, and then are you narrating for it? I, I, I started to, and I, I got about, I got about three or four chapters in and decided I hated the sound of my voice yeah. so much. 
yeah, right. That I that I just didn't want to proceed, but uh, um, so I, I ended up kicking it over to uh, to a, a guy that sounded a little better on uh, on over recording. But um, uh, I did do a little bit of a, like a ten minute uh, uh, podcast ahead of it, so that uh, um, I can kind of discuss the book and future books and stuff like that, and people can actually hear my voice uh, for a little bit before the uh, before the uh, the narrator takes over. Um, but yeah, and then decided that it was a book that deserved a trilogy. Um, so the second book called relapse came out, um, continues the, the saga of some of these characters, Damien and Loki and some of the guys that are, um, <clears throat> that are on these teams. And, uh, there'll be a, a third book coming out as the conclusion of the trilogy, probably in the next year or two, I would think from now, but, uh, yeah, so just kind of a, a good, uh, a good way to kind of tell a story and, and also maybe touch on some very sensitive subjects, right? Like PTSD and, and guys that are dealing and struggling with a lot of stuff at home. Right. And it's usually, I mean, if you look at like previous wars, you look at, um, world war one, world war two, they were super kinetic and so many people were killed. And I mean, there were battles where thousands and thousands of people died on, on right. all sides. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, the, the wars didn't last too long. I mean, so then you fast forward to the, and, and there's difficulty in that, right? And it's difficult to be in a battle where 20,000 people were killed. Um, and so then you, and then you fast forward to the wars from today where they are kinetic, there aren't as many people dying in a single um, battle, but it's right. it's such a longer war. So it and such a smaller number of people are fighting this super long war. So it really, it's really tiring out people, and people are getting burned out. Um, from mentally, constant, yeah, yeah, mentally, Definitely. physically, yeah. you know, just constantly deploying, and. Um, there was a former uh, Delta Force uh, operator. He he talked about this on a. I don't remember if it was for a podcast or a show. And then I eventually I'd had him on this show, and um, he basically spoke about how it got to like his PTSD and everything was so bad that it got to a point where he preferred to be in Iraq fighting than <laughs> to be at home in his living room. And, yeah, and that just no, kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I, I agree, man. Like I said, it's manageable stress, right? I mean, it's uh, it's the kind of stress that um, it, a lot of people who have never been there. Um, well, I got an anecdotal story. You know, I I, uh, I was on a, a transport, uh, um, OGA transport, going in theater with um, an analyst who had never been there. Ivy League educated gal, you know intelligent capable of course in her own right but it never served time in a in a war zone well um you know they're required to do some firearms training and have to be responsible for a lot more equipment than they would be back in langley or back in uh, um the beltway and uh she you know happened to um have trouble managing some of her items and and uh had a uh a, a pistol um left a pistol on the aircraft and and, um, you know, I approached her about it and, uh, she, you know, politely, of course, I try to do it as, as, uh, as friendly as I could. And, um, she's like, Oh, that's not mine. Cause she, <laughs> she was so embarrassed by the, uh, you know, by the uh, assertion, but I was like, Oh, I'm pretty sure it is. I, I think she grabbed it. And, um, 
you know, she wouldn't take it because she was just so embarrassed that, you know, that she had to, uh, to, to, uh, account for something that she left behind that was, you know, pretty important to her survival. And then in addition, I think there were a lot of guys that were boots on ground analysts, et cetera, for the first time that, uh, um, you know, first time we had, uh, incoming, um, indirect fire, I think at the time was rockets, uh, were so petrified and so worked up. And a lot of guys obviously had been in theater for so long, you just kind of stand in place or you take a knee because you don't want it to blow it up, blow it off your feet. Um, uh, but, um, you know, you're just so used to the, you know, the, the ins and outs of war that it's just not, um, uh, a big deal to you anymore. And it's the kind of stress, like I said, that's manageable. You, you prefer that stress over trying to pick out diapers at the supermarket or you, right. uh, you know, over trying to, um, become, um, uh, you know, a civilian and deal with the rigors of civilian life. So, um, yeah, for sure. I think that's a lot of guys' assertion, um, uh, nowadays and, and why, why there's such a disconnect, I think, between, um, society and, and veterans. Right. I mean, that, that kind of thing being in gunfights, it's more black and white, right? It's like either I survive and you don't, or you survive, I don't, or you know, we both go home and it's very simple. But, uh, you know, like you said, just doing some of the daily day-to-day stuff at home with the family or whatever could, could be in some ways more stressful. As yeah. crazy as, as that might sound to people who have never done any type of, um, service or been into a war zone. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, I, I, uh, since, since you were planning on talking about launching into it anyway, I think, you know, some of the issues that I had, um, contributed to, um, the untimely death of my wife, you know, she, uh, she had issues with alcohol. She was alone a lot. I mean, geez, I was deployed eight months intermittently throughout the year, um, raised our three children by herself, uh, had issues with depression. Um, I came home, had issue, anger issues, um, had anxiety, um, definitely suffered from nightmares, et cetera. Um, so I think for me, um, I was a contributing factor. I might not have grown that tree that, that contributed to her, um, or that, that plant that contributed to her, uh, death, but I certainly watered it from time to time with my own issues. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of how, uh, this, all this came about was at some point, um, she felt more of a, of a burden or more of a liability, um, than an asset to our marriage and, and what have you. And, um, um, I know a lot of guys suffer that when they came home, and, uh, you know, she suffered it while I was away. So, um, yeah, unfortunate, but, you know, certainly, um, a, a, a kind of a cascading effect or, or, uh, ripple effect from the war for sure. Yeah. And, and, and first of all, sorry for your loss, you know, obviously losing someone that's so close to you, like a wife, it's a huge deal. Um, um, you know, I've lost close family members and it's, it's not fun, you know? And, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know that that's one of the things that people don't realize is you know the events on a on a single day have a, a, a ripple effect and they they affect so many lives you know like a, a guy gets killed in combat and um you know he has a wife and two kids and his kids are young and that's going to mess with them for the rest of their life and and their wife is going to be you know devastated and and that's going to affect the relationships they have with other people and the, you know, their cousins and their brothers are going to be affected by it. So 
uh, all of these things that take place, you know, they, they aren't just affecting a single person. You know, it, it really ripples across the waves, so to speak. It does. It does indeed. And, and, and you know, that's that's kind of what I had to do when I was stuck at home was really um, write about some of these things uh, to get my head clear about a lot of it and to begin my transition back into uh, civilian life. I mean, you know, it's one thing to go into work and be around guys that had been in CAG, um, you know, but it's another thing to be able to exist within society and, and uh, in general and, and just be a productive member. Cause I mean, if you're going to be uh, torn up and, and, uh, and angry about a lot of the stuff that you've seen downrange, it's not going to bode well for you, your family or for society in general. So um, I think a lot of guys, uh, you know, really need to find um, programs that work best for them and, and, um, and just get used to the fact that, Hey, you know, they might not be deploying anymore, but, um, and they can be proud of their service, but they just, uh, they need to, uh, to function on a, on a, on a different level now. Right. And it, that's such a, a difficult thing for some people. I mean, uh, there's been people who are get, get out and they're, they're able to, at least on the surface, it's like a seamless transition. Um, right. and then others have a, a much more difficult time and, and that's not to say anything bad about them because some of these people are like were absolutely fantastic at what they did and and you know some of the best operators and some of the best um you know people working down range um and then they come back and they have real issues um like i, I know a guy he um he was a, a team leader at a special missions unit um one of his guys got killed and then after that, he just kind of went in like a, a downward spiral, um, drinking too much. And it's it's just it's, sometimes it's really difficult to to recover from losing someone uh, that you were close to, you know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm the first to admit that uh, that I spent probably a better part of a year uh, questioning, you know, my own existence and uh, who I was and and what this meant for me, my life, my children's life, etc. You know, I mean, that's a part of life, right? I mean, let's face it, that's that's the bottom line. But um, it doesn't make it any easier each time it happens. You know, you, you got to process the loss and, and um, you know, still be able to care for yourself and your family um, each day. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not going to – it's only going to get worse uh, from here is what I tell people that are older, you know, or people that um, have had a certain age where they're going to start losing family members or guys in their units or if they're still deployed, et cetera. Um, it's just going to, just going to keep happening. And, um, you know, it's just something, like I said, that uh, you almost have to live with as a, as a component of life. So, right. I mean, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, you, it's, it's part of the cycle, right? You live and then you die at some point. And, um, yeah. Uh, you know, you, like you, some people, like I, I know people who, um, have had uh, sort of bouts with death, like they've come close to it, the medical issue, issue or something like that, and um, it kind of really shook them, you know, to their core. And um, and I guess to a point, it's understandable. You know, you you do get your your, um, your bell rung, so to speak, when you deal with a brush with death or or you lose someone close to you. But um, you know, ultimately, it is a part of life, and um, I think most people have a, a fear of death and um you know when when you lose somebody the the thing that sucks the most about it is like you can never speak to them again um 
or, or you know, you're not going to be able to spend time with them physically again. So that that's kind of the sucky part about it. And um, and then you always think about the person, you know, even years later. Uh, at least I know for me, you know, I, people close to me have passed away, and it's like years later, I, I think about it at least once during the day, you know. Um, yeah. And um, but I think if if you look at some of the sort of uh, ancient cultures that have existed in the world, um, some of these cultures have had a very different view on death and, and what it means. And um, uh, in many ways, they, they celebrate the life of someone who has died versus um, just mourning, you know. So it, there's just so many different ways you can look at it. And, um, and I think probably uh, as a society in general, the way we look at it, and I don't mean just you and me, I mean just in general, like, it's it's probably not the healthiest way, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, a guy, friend of mine, a uh, former veteran, um, uh, started an organization here called uh, Pro- uh, Shot at Dawn Project, and it's a totally immersive veteran uh, project where um, they deal with everything a veteran comes back home with, you know, not just, obviously, injuries, but uh, both physical and psychological, but... Um, you know, dealing with uh, credit issues or uh, drug, chemical dependency, stuff like that. So it's um, it's an all-inclusive and they get dormed and stuff like that. It was a big, bold project. And I think um, initially uh, it requir- required too much funding. So he kind of uh, scaled it down and is hoping to push it through piece by piece. But, um, you know, it's a lot of the ways that the, um, the Native Americans – dealt with their braves, their warriors, you know, they didn't let them back in society. Uh, initially they had to do, I don't know, geez, I think one tribe did a couple of months. Um, these guys had to kind of go out in the wilderness and forage for themselves and kind of get, get to know themselves and, and, uh, um, you know, rely on themselves completely apart from society. Um, and then a lot of them would come back and they'd sweat lodge them and deal with the remaining issues. And then they become elders, um, within the tribe. So, um, you know, we have cheese, our, our aircraft would, would arrive within 24 hours, uh, from our AO. Uh, so I was back here buying cereal, um, you know what I mean? For my kids within right. 24 hours or less. Um, and that I know that a lot of guys in, that I worked with and guys that are still in Ranger battalion, um, the same thing, right? They're back here. Um, you know, some of the ones that are living off base are, are back at home within 24 hours of, of rolling out on target. <clears throat> and, uh, and that's a hard life to live, man. That's just some difficult stuff to face, for sure. Right, and it's it's almost like a buffer period where you, you know, allow guys to, like you said, just sort of self-reflect and and rely on themselves and and figure it out before they're put back into the into the tribe or the group. And um, you know, one thing that you know you mentioned the Native Americans, or you can, you know, any sort of warrior or tribal group. Um, you know, people told stories and, and they, you know, sat around the fire and, and, and spoke to each other and interacted with each other. And, um, and there was a support system for the warriors, uh, because like, you know, back in the day, you know, talking hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, when people were fighting, typically the battle was, you know, at their gate, so to speak, or, or, uh, if a battle was lost, the next battle would be at their gate. So, Right. People right. had a, a, there was a certain, I guess, flavor to it, you know, a certain level of realism. Like, this is real. Like, if we lose this next battle, we're all going to, 
be subjugated or you know tortured and you know whatever and um so it had it has a different flavor so there's a, a not that people don't support war fighters today but um i i guess there's a, a different feeling when it's like i'm gonna lose everything if these guys don't win this next engagement so to speak and um so yeah so and and, and that's another thing like i feel like most of or just about everything that we go through in our lives, it's happened in the past already. And if if you pay attention enough or you look at history enough, you can see similar situations that people have gone through and you can see what they did to kind of get through it. Um, and I, I think that's a technique that people could probably utilize a little bit more. Um, so you, you, you spoke about something interesting where people kind of, it might have been the first engagement where they sort of froze uh, once the bullets started flying, and then the guys who are more seasoned, they're, they're uh, more calm in that situation. Do you remember what your first engagement was like? Um, I was in a um, my first time downrange was in an AO that was um, it was an Indian country, and I say that um, mildly, um, obviously with. Uh, uh, racial connotations, obviously, but I, it's just uh, slang for you know being in a, a pretty hostile area of a foreign country that um, was considered a classified location, meaning that there was no American presence in that region at the time, other than that what we brought to it. Um, but um, you know, definitely a war zone, uh, probably one of the more hostile regions um, on the globe, and it was um, in a pretty remote area. But I think where we got lucky was. There were some um, geopolitical factors in play. It was wedged between a couple of countries that had um, some uh, kind of a, a barter system in place. And I think the reason why nothing ever really happened, we had a couple of uh, close calls, but nothing ever really went down for, for us was because they were um, trading one item for another. And as long as nobody, um, meaning uh, the indigenous military nor us, stepped on that, uh, that, uh, cash register, so to speak of, 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 uh, trading, uh, one item for another, um, there was no issues, but the second we tried to intervene, um, or maybe search vehicles in the area, um, or interrupt that smuggling route, so to speak, then we probably would have been, uh, constantly, um, attacked or mortared. But, um, I think for me, it was just an eye-opening experience, uh, really on his inhospitable terrain, um, dealing with indige folks that just, you could tell just hated our guts. Um, because, you know, we, we brought up, uh, obviously a different factor and an unknown factor to the region. Um, and we usually dealt like Americans do, especially with the agency. We deal with a lot of things by, uh, trading, uh, money for information. And, uh, that works for a while, but, it never uh, seems to, to um, bring goodwill on a, on a large scale, so to speak. So, um, uh, you know, it's just I got to see the ins and outs of a um, the system. Uh, my first couple deployments before I had to deal with, like you said, with like bullets flying or, um, you know, any kind of uh, a real risk um, on a, on a large scale. And then of course, uh, did another AO where that got even worse. And then of course got to Afghanistan and Afghanistan, as you well know, is a, is a pretty risky place. So, um, definitely got into some, some issues there a couple of times, but, um, you know, nothing, 
nothing too um, over the top horrible that you know I just couldn't deal with it. I think it was just it it, it became kind of a um, like I said before, it kind of came, became manageable risk and and uh, for me or manageable stress, and you, you really start to enjoy it over time and not so much your more tepid experience at home. So, right. Yeah. So, how long has it been since you've separated from doing that type of work? So, 2016 uh, was the last time I was deployed, um, and I did a training iteration. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, 2015. 20, I did a training iteration in 2016, uh, renewed my clearance um, to continue to deploy, and then just never could. You know, I got at the time I had three little kids. There was just no way to. Um, the only parent at home, obviously, there's just no way to mitigate that uh, responsibility. Or nor would you want to necessarily. Right. Um, so for me, it was just um, a, a decision, and um, it, it made it easier to, uh, like I said, to work with a bunch of guys, uh, including a couple tra- a couple medics that were acting as CAG medics that were acting as trainers for the company that I was consulting for. Um, that helped a lot. Uh, you know, getting to go to Shot Show and kind of do what you love to do, uh, so to speak, or, or you know, talk about things you love to talk about and. Uh, and, and hobnob with guys that, that have been there, done that. So, um, you know, that's definitely something that, um, you know, made life worthwhile for me after I got out. So did you feel like doing some of the writing, uh, particularly the first bit of writing that you did that you never published, you felt like that helped you like just kind of getting it out on paper and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was just, just getting the words in front of me and, and talking about the hard things, you know, I mean, um, <laughs> you got to face your own demons, right? And I certainly was a contributor, like I admitted to um, to uh, to problems at home, and and just being able to write that out and see it um, in print in front of you, and know that uh, that you really could have done better um, is a good uh, good first step for sure. So uh, I, I recommend it to everybody, even if it's in the form of a journal. It doesn't have to be an autobiography or a book, but even if you write a journal with the stuff that you're grateful for. Um, you know, def- definitely a good uh, move. Yeah, I've even had guys um, come on the podcast and and talk about some of their their story, and sometimes it was for the first time. And um, once we were done, they were like, you know, like that felt really good. Like I feel so much better just talking about it. I'm not a therapist or anything like that, but uh, I think just the the storytelling aspect of it, uh, sort of like the you know the, our ancestors and and. And other people from previous generations did. I think that does have a positive effect on people. No, I agree. I agree. It's therapeutic. So uh, if anyone in the audience is interested in picking up your book, where can they do that? So I've got signed hard copies, um, both uh, A Failed State and Relapse. The Cost of War are available um, at my website, and that's andrewcousins.com. Of course, my name's a little different than uh, Kurt Cousins, the quarterback, but it's uh, C-O-U-S-S-E-N-S. Or they can just uh, you know type it into a Google search. It's uh, The ebook is available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Sony, iTunes, uh, what have you. It's everywhere, um, different uh, ebook platforms. And then, of course, the Audible should be out here within the next 30, 30 days or so for A Failed State and be working on the Audible soon for a relapse. But, uh, yeah, good story. Like I said, I've gotten great reviews uh, from guys both in the military and military wives as well as some civilians that know a little bit about um, war and what have you. It's not just a shoot 'em up although it has those components. It's got, uh, like I said, a lot of depth of character in there. So. 
And if anyone is interested in uh, keeping up with you on social media or anything, where can they go to do that? So the best place, um, and I think where I get the most engagement is on Instagram, and that is a failed state novel. Um, I post a lot of pictures of guys that are still deployed, uh, myself, um, you know, doing some consulting work, what have you, as well as um, uh, friends of mine that I've met along the way through SHOT Show. And, um, you know, we've met uh, a lot of great folks uh, and people you probably are familiar with, like Two Lamb and Tim Kennedy and what have you. So a lot of great guys that, um, you know, haunt uh, haunt the uh, the uh, halls of shot show there and, and, uh, have, have some great projects themselves going on. So, um, just a, just a great bunch of guys. And, and I got a chance to, like I said, meet and hang out and, and, uh, take some pictures with them and, and hope potentially train with them and stuff like that. So, um, that's a good place to go under, uh, Instagram. Awesome.
Thank mm-hmm. you.